Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome back to Interview with the Expert, a podcast series from Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Education. I'm your host, Dr. Luke Birchall, an adult congenital heart failure specialist here at Mayo Clinic. And joining me today is Dr. Shannon Dunley, cardiologist and heart transplant specialist. Thanks for joining me, Shannon. Thank you for having me. So I thought today um, we would talk about the latest guidelines, which I know you were an important part of the writing committee. Can you perhaps start by telling us what do cardiologists need to know about the latest guidelines for people with left ventricular dysfunction, particularly LV dysfunction with reduced ejection fraction? So for patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, I hope that there were a number of important points from the guidelines, but I would say that the most important take home message from the guidelines is the importance of quadruple therapy in those patients. And so for, by quadruple therapy, I mean um, a combination of an ACE inhibitor, an ARB or an ARNI, first choice would be ARNI, plus a beta blocker, plus a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, plus an SGLT2 inhibitor. And so that quadruple therapy is really the cornerstone of the management of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And ideally, it's important to get patients on all four therapies. I know, you know, when I go back to when I started in heart failure, it was all about counteracting the sympathetic nervous system with the long-acting beta blockers, counteracting an upregulated renin-angiotensin system without ACE inhibitors, then it became ARBs, the mineralocorticoids. Can you tell us a little bit more about the use of ARNI? And then we might talk a little bit about the SGL2 inhibitors. Let's start with ARNI and Intresto being the medication that most people are talking about. Sure, yes. Um, so the ARNI that's approved for use in the United States is Secubitril plus Valsartan. And so we're very familiar with Valsartan, which is an ARB, but Secubitril is the addition there. And that's really the angiotensin um, receptor blocker plus a neprolysin inhibitor. So the Secubitril is the neprolysin inhibitor. And that inhibits the breakdown of the natriuretic peptides. And so the natriuretic peptides, while we think of them as markers for heart failure severity and heart failure diagnosis, they actually do a number of good things for heart failure, including um, facilitating with naturesis and diuresis and other good things. So by inhibiting the breakdown of those natriuretic peptides, they stick around to do the good things that we know they do. And then the SGL2 inhibitors, a lot of excitement. I'm certainly having patients come into clinic. They've heard about it. They've seen it on television or they've heard about it from their neighbors. What's the conversations that you're having about the use of these SGL2 inhibitors with your patients? Unlike the Arnie's, we don't completely understand how the SGLT2 inhibitors really do such an amazing job of improving outcomes in heart failure yet. There are a number of different pleiotropic effects, and so people are still working on sorting that out. But what we have seen is that in patients, it was they were originally utilized, as you know, to treat patients with diabetes as a glucose-lowering agent. But what they found was that they were putting patients who are at high risk for cardiovascular disease on these medications and the diabetes outcomes trials. And they were finding that these patients were much less likely to develop heart failure to be hospitalized for heart failure. They wondered whether this could actually be a treatment for heart failure, even in patients without diabetes. And a number of different trials have now been published with, which have investigated that and have shown that SGLT2 inhibitors are in fact 
a treatment for heart failure. They improve outcomes in patients with heart failure, including those with diabetes and without diabetes. And so because they work through a different mechanism than the other quadruple therapies, their benefit is really additive to the other um, types of medications that we've tr traditionally been using to manage heart failure. And so, so far, we've been talking about the patient who has heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. What about the other patient that we see their ejection fractions preserved? They've got so-called stiff heart. So heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. What do the guidelines um, tell us about that? What's the update? Yes. I mean, as you know, Dr. Birchall, it's been a challenge, more of a challenge to find therapies that really improve outcomes for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. But we were very excited in this iteration of the guidelines to now um, have some evidence that the SGLT2 inhibitors do improve outcomes in patients with HFPEF. So there have now been a couple of trials that have been published. The DELIVER trial and the EMPEROR PRESERVE trial have both shown benefit to improving outcomes with use of SGLT2 inhibitors in HFPEF. So now those really should be the first-line therapy for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. We already knew that there were some medicines that may help to reduce heart failure hospitalizations, like mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists and ARBs. And now there's some evidence that perhaps ARNIs may be helpful, particularly in those people who have um, HFPEF with ejection fractions on the lower end of the range. So those people that are you know, in that kind of low 50s range or below. We were very excited to report that there is there are some therapies now that can be helpful for managing our HFPEF patients. That's really been the holy grail um, for those patients, being able to provide them with a medication that has some real benefits. I think it's exciting to finally be able to offer something. I wanted to ask you about your approach to commencing these medications. I'm working with adults with congenital heart disease. So many of my patients come in with pretty soft blood pressure. So I don't have a lot of uh, blood pressure to work with when I'm starting these medications. Interested in, are you starting one at a time? Are you starting multiple agents at once? And let's imagine we're talking about a heart failure patient with reduced ejection fraction. So all four classes are up for grabs. What is your practice? What are your colleagues doing? Starting with one versus starting with many? Definitely. I think that this is in general evolving. So I would say traditionally, we would generally start kind of the ACE ARB ARNI, one of those, plus a heart failure beta blocker. And then we would titrate those up slowly over time and then kind of reassess. And if patients qualified for MRAs at that point, we would add one. There's more emerging evidence that it's really important to maximize the benefit for each of those quadruple therapies to get patients on quad therapy as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, as quickly as is safe to do so. And so I would um, say that it's more important probably at this point to get patients on one of each quadruple therapy medication and then work on kind of titrating your ARNIs and your beta blockers. And do you think I'm just being a bit of a nervous nally about starting multiple medications in my patient who comes to clinic with a relatively low blood pressure? What's your experience been in taking that approach, multiple medications, but low blood pressure? Do people actually tolerate it better than I, I think they might be? I think that generally people do tolerate it better than they might be. But if you have those patients you're um, worried about, my practice would generally be to start one or two, but start a couple of the medicines. And then though, instead of waiting a month or two months to start a second medication, really have an appointment or a nurse visit with a protocol if you have that accessible to you to get them started on those other quadruple therapy medications, as long as they tolerate 
you know, those first couple of medications when you start it. And that's a really great point. The interval between these up titrations, these aren't patients that you start and then you sort of say, see me back in six or 12 months, are they? No, I think that getting um, patients on, on guideline-directed medical therapies at you know, the highest doses that they'll tolerate um, is something that we try to accomplish within, within certainly a few months, just to really maximize the ability to improve the patient's outcomes, also that reverse remodeling process, and hopefully improving their ejection fraction. Great. And I know we're just getting close to the end of this conversation, but one of the questions that comes up a lot in clinical practice is congestion and symptoms of congestion. So given that it's such a common problem, um, I thought we would uh, ask you, Dr. Dunley, for some tips from the expert on how do you approach congestion, um, particularly for the patient who's on a high dose of diuretics? What tips do you have for clinicians out there? Definitely, it can be challenging um, to uh, manage those patients who are really requiring high doses of loop diuretics. But, um, you know, one thing I um, have become more comfortable with over time is just understanding that the pharmacokinetics of loop diuretics and understanding that there's kind of that threshold effect. So it's sort of an S-shaped curve where you have to be at a certain level where you're going to get a response to hit that exponential kind of response on the curve. And then, but there is also a ceiling effect too. So in each patient, it's different and it can change over time based on their renal function and other measures. There's no easy answer, but what I would say is that particularly if, a, if you're starting patients newly on loop diuretics and you're not, they're not having a response, double it, you know, and, and, and kind of double it again until you're able to get that response. If you have a patient who's been already on loop diuretics for a long time and is on maximal doses, there are a couple of tricks. I mean, one is that the bioavailability is a little better for things like torsamide compared to furosemide. So for example, if you have a patient on 80 BID and a furosemide, they may have a much better response to kind of an equivalent dose of torsamide, such as 40 BID. And so making that switch can be helpful in those patients. But if you're really not seeing still much response, then I think investigating further to understand if that patient has advanced heart failure is important, but also thinking about adding complementary type of diuretic, such as a thiazide diuretic, can be helpful to augment diuresis in those patients. But I would underscore that diuretic resistance is one of the hallmarks of patients who are starting to develop advanced heart failure. And definitely think about sending them to someone like me if you think that they may benefit from advanced therapies like LVAD or heart transplant. That's a really great point to end on. I, I agree. I think that we tend to overlook these patients who have features of advanced heart failure. At least in the community, we see these patients being referred to us and they're on very high doses of diuretics, but they have some of those other sort of red flag features. Those features, they of course might include intolerance of the other heart failure medications, um, heart failure hospitalizations, more than one in the past year, um, a history of being in hospital and needing some inotrope support, severely reduced ejection fraction, someone who's in New York Heart Class 3, 4 limitations. I think the list could go on, but I completely agree. We want to be identifying these patients early and referring them to someone like yourself so that we can achieve the best outcomes for that patient. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been another great conversation and hopefully we can have another one in the future. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME Podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic Podcast.